Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about the 1992 Supreme Court case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey in our latest installment of Today in Supreme Court History. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Locking Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, especially if you are new to the program, I do want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be uh, using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. So, like I said, we are going to be doing uh, our latest installment of Today in Supreme Court History because it was today in 1992 that oral arguments were made before the Supreme Court in the case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, this is a case that is really an important case. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, it is an abortion case. It is uh, one that modified Roe v. Wade. Uh, and it had a lot of really interesting implications for a lot of different issues to the Supreme Court. Not only the way the court looked at uh, abortion, but also a lot of its 14th Amendment jurisprudence uh, the way it looked at substantive due process changed considerably. The way it handled judicial scrutiny in these cases uh, was altered significantly. And it also has a really weird take on stare decisis, uh, which is just past case precedent, if you don't know. Um, and they created some really weird and really kind of illogical uh, uh, rules of stare decisis that just had not existed before. So there's a lot of really interesting things about this case that make it a unique case and make it one worth knowing. So let's just get right to it, shall we? So as many of you probably know, Roe versus Wade was decided in 1993. Now at the time, abortion laws were not as politically divisive as they are today. Uh, indeed, when Roe was decided, a majority of the justices on the court had been appointed by Republican presidents including four brand-new Nixon appointees. Now, Roe attempted to resolve the nationwide debate over abortion, but far from settling the issue, however, Roe actually ended up having the effect uh, of polarizing the nation over this contentious issue. Now, there were many conservatives who sought to overturn Roe and restore the power of the states to prohibit abortions. However, Short of a constitutional amendment, this goal could only be accomplished if more conservative justices were nominated to the Supreme Court who were willing to overrule Roe. And between 1981 and 1991, Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush nominated five new members to the court. We have Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter, and Clarence Thomas. Now, by 1992, that means that there was really only one member of the Supreme Court, Justice Byron White, who had been appointed by a Democratic president, and he had actually dissented in Roe. So this gradual change in composition seemed to promise a change in the court's stance on abortion. Now, in 1989, Pennsylvania enacted five new restrictions on abortion. The most controversial provision 
was one that required married women to inform their husbands before obtaining an abortion. And it's these Pennsylvania laws that were challenged in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, now, during oral arguments, Ken Starr, uh, who before he wrote a 900-page report about jizz on a dress, uh, was the Solicitor General for the United States, contended that the state should only review abortion cases with a rational basis scrutiny. And he said, quote, under the traditional analysis, there must, in fact, be a rational connection with a legitimate state interest, and the state cannot proceed in an arbitrary and capricious fashion, end quote. Now, the Council for Planned Parenthood responded that the government's approach would amount to overruling Roe. Specifically, they said, to adopt a lesser standard and to abandon strict scrutiny for a less protective standard such as an undue burden test or a rational relationship test, as was being uh, suggested by the Solicitor General, would be the same thing as overruling Roe. Now, during oral arguments, Justice Kennedy was clearly uncomfortable with this kind of all-or-nothing approach. And he stated, Well, if you're going to argue that Roe can survive only in its most rigid formation, that is an election you can make as counsel. I am suggesting that that is not the only logical possibility in this case. Now, generally, the justices meet shortly after oral arguments at the so-called conference to vote on a case. Now, a vote at conference is not binding and can be changed at any point up until the final decision is announced to the public. Now, immediately after Casey was argued, we had a five-vote block who emerged at the conference who were looking to overrule Roe, and this was Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justices White, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas, who would have all upheld the Pennsylvania laws. Now, this left in dissent Justices Blackman, O'Connor, Stevens, and Souter, uh, all four dissenting justices, by the way, appointed by Republican presidents. But the conference vote would not last, and this was one of the most famous compromises in all of Supreme Court history. Justice Kennedy actually ended up switching sides. He ultimately joined with Justices O'Connor and Souter to write the controlling plurality opinion, which became known as the Joint Opinion, and this left Chief Justice Rehnquist, along with White, Scalia, and Thomas, in dissent. Now, the Joint Opinion rejected the government's call to overturn Roe. Rather, the plurality explained that the central holding of Roe should be reaffirmed. Yet the plurality departed from Roe in four ways. First, the Casey plurality abandoned Roe's trimester framework. So Roe established a trimester framework to govern abortion regulations. And this trimester framework, uh, no doubt, was erected to ensure that the woman's right to choose not to become, would not become so subordinate to the state's interest in promoting fetal life that her choice would exist in theory, but not in fact. Now, a framework of this rigidity was found to be unnecessary, uh, and in this later interpretation sometimes contradicted the state's permissible exercise of its powers. Second, the plurality described the right to an abortion in a very different fashion uh, than did Roe, 
And instead of focusing on a fundamental right to privacy, as Roe did, they, the joint opinion focused on liberty. And they said, our presidents have respected the private realm of family life, with this, which the state cannot enter. That these matters involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime, choices central to personal dignity and autonomy, are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. And they said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own uh, concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. So beliefs about these matters could not uh, defined attributes of personhood uh, that, uh, that were formed under compulsion from the state. These considerations began the analysis of the woman's interest by the court in terminating the pregnancy, but as the court said, they do not end it. Now, third, the Casey plurality found that the state had a legitimate interest from the outset of pregnancy to protect both the health of the mother and the life of the fetus. In contrast, Roe held that the state only has an interest to protect fetal life after the point of viability. That is, in the third trimester. So now, under the joint opinions analysis, the state has an interest in protecting the fetal life throughout all nine months. So fourth, the Casey plurality seemed to abandon Roe's application of strict scrutiny to, prote to protect the fundamental right to an abortion, and instead the court applied what became known as the undue burden framework to protect liberty. They found that the state may enforce restrictions to persuade the woman to choose children over abortion throughout all three trimesters, so long as these restrictions do not place a substantial obstacle in the path of the woman's choice. In other words, the state may not place an undue burden on the woman's right to choose an abortion. Now, during oral arguments, uh, Pennsylvania contended that its law did not violate this test, uh, as Scalia actually mocked this undue burden standard by asking, how do I go about determining whether it is an undue burden or not? What law book would I look to? So with these four changes, the court found that four of the five Pennsylvania laws were unconstitutional. Now, the joint opinion, however, concluded that the husband notification requirement unduly burdens this right and was unconstitutional. And the reason they gave was, quote, a husband has no enforceable right to require a wife to advise him before she exercises her personal choices, end quote. And the court held that the state may not give to the man, quote, the kind of dominion over his wife that parents exercise over their children, end quote. So Planned Parenthood v. Casey is a landmark decision concerning abortion rights, but the plurality also provided one of the court's most important treatments of stare decisis. This is the principle that the court should stand by its own precedent. And this is why the very first sentence of the joint opinion started with, Liberty finds no refuge in the jurisprudence of doubt. 
they went on to say that a presumption in favor of stare decisis of standing by the resolution of an issue reached in a prior case is necessary not only for or not only to accomplish the mundane tasks of any legal system, but to realize our hope for a stable society that aspires to the rule of law. So the three members of the plurality admitted that they might not have agreed with Roe as an original matter, yet they relied on stare decisis to uphold what they referred to as Roe's central holding. Yet, other important elements of Roe, like the trimester framework, were discarded. They said, except in the instance of a ruling so clearly erroneous as to be, for that reason, unenforceable, our decision to adhere to holdings in prior cases or, in exceptional circumstances to overrule them, are informed by a series of prudential inquiries, which in this instance provide reasons to adhere to Roe's central holding. So, when should the court overturn a precedent? Now, the plurality identifies several what they call prudential and pragmatic considerations designed to test the consistency of overruling a prior decision with the ideal of the rule of law and to gauge the respective cost of reaffirming and overruling a prior case. So, first, you have to decide whether the rule has proven to be intolerable simply in defying practical workability. Second, whether the rule is subject to any kind of reliance that would lend a special hardship to the consequence of overruling and add inequality to the cost of repudiation. Third, whether the related principles of law have so far developed as to have left the old rule no more than a remnant of abandoned doctrine. Or, finally, whether facts have changed or come to be seen so differently as to have robbed the old rule of significant application or justification. So, with this in mind, the plurality found that, despite the controversy Roe has produced, the decision has not proven unworkable in practice. It has undoubtedly engendered reliance in countless people who have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society, in the two decades since it was handed down. So the plurality also contended that the court would be weakened as an institution if Roe were overturned. They said to overrule Roe under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to re-examine a watershed decision would subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any reasonable question. And it was for that reason that the plurality found it imperative to adhere to the essence of Roe's original decision. Now, Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist wrote the principal dissent, which he delivered from the bench, and he chastised the plurality for simultaneously abandoning Roe while also claiming to reaffirm it under a doctrine of stare decisis. First, he found Roe decided that a woman had a fundamental right to an abortion. He pointed out that the joint opinion rejects his view. Second, Roe decided that abortion regulations were to be subjected to strict scrutiny that could be justified only in the light of a compelling state interest. 
while the joint opinion rejected this view. That Roe analyzed abortion regulations under a strict trimester framework, a framework which had guided the court's decision-making for 19 years, the joint opinion rejected that framework of what they called the undue burden test, which does not command the majority of this court even today. He went on to say this is surely not stare decisis as we have known it up until now. Rehnquist also disagreed with the plurality's claim that the court's legitimacy would be undermined if Roe were reversed under fire. He said the joint opinion's insistence on preserving the form, if not the substance of the rule, can just as easily be viewed as a surrender of those who have brought political pressure in favor of that decision. Once the courts start looking to the current of public opinion regarding a particular judgment, if it, if it enters a truly bottomless pit from which there is simply no extracting itself. Now, Justice Scalia wrote a separate dissent, and he offered an even more blunt criticism of the joint opinions in the approach to stare decisis. He said that the plurality insists upon the necessity of hearing not at all to Roe. He wrote, but only to what he calls the central holding. He said, it seems to me that stare decisis ought to be applied even to the doctrine of stare decisis. And I confess never to have heard of this new keep what you want and throw away the rest version. So the right to abortion survived, but Roe versus Wade was substantially modified. Now, in the case of Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt from 2016, the majority of the court would embrace the Casey plurality's undue burden approach. Uh, but as usual, that is another case for another day, and another installment of today in Supreme Court history. So I want to thank you all so much for uh, listening. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, and I want to remind you guys again that you should be looking out for my upcoming episode with Scott Horton. Uh, that will be uh, up sometime next week. Uh, but I am conducting the interview with him tomorrow, Friday afternoon. So if you have any questions for uh, me to put to Scott, and again, this guy is an incredible, just encyclopedic source of knowledge and wisdom at, at that um, regarding uh, American history and foreign policy. So if you have those questions, uh, you can let me know by going over to Patreon and becoming a patron for just as little as $2 a month and leave me uh, a note uh, over there about questions you would like me to ask Scott. So, uh, I would also advise you guys to uh, check out uh, his book called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terror. Uh, this is what we are going to be discussing mainly tomorrow. Uh, so, I'm going to put a link in this video to where you can uh, go buy the book online. I'm also going to put a link, though, to a series of videos that Scott did uh, where he just it gives you a good understanding of the general tenor of his work. It's a playlist of short videos that briefly sum up the topics for each chapter of the book uh, and just given by Scott himself. And the, I, these, If you're unfamiliar with his work, uh, this playlist of videos will certainly convince you that his new book is worth buying. Uh, I will link to those in the description as well. 
Uh, and so, uh, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, and as always, Jay Linda Escarthago.